This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everyone. Today, I'm replaying one of my all-time favorite episodes of this podcast. It's about how the teddy bear kicked off a national moral panic in 1907 and why it just might be history's most subversive toy. Next month, I'll have a new episode inspired by this one because a toy historian recently heard this episode, then reached out to share the untold story of the action figure that'll make you think differently about the toys you grew up with. I am really excited about it. But first... Let's get into teddy bears. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the smartest solutions to our most misunderstood problems. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and in each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing today and figure out where it came from, what important things we're missing, and how we can create more opportunity tomorrow. We don't know a ton about Reverend Michael G. Esper, but we know that he was loved. He was a Michigan man, born in a town called Springwell that no longer exists, and Father Esper built a local life for himself. In the year 1902, he was hired as the fourth ever pastor of a little church across the state called St. Joseph Parish, and the place was a bit of a fixer-upper. He oversaw improvements on the edifice and rectory. He put up a school building and cleaned up the cemetery. He took out a $20,000 life insurance policy for himself so that if he died, the money would pay off the church's debts. Local news stories from the time talk about how beloved he was. Once, after taking a trip to Milwaukee, Father Esper came back and got to work as usual, but at around 8.30 that evening, he was asked to join a little gathering the church ladies were having. So he walked into the room, and surprise, it was really a party for him, and the place was packed. People applauded, they sang songs, and ate cake and ice cream, and here's from the St. Joseph Daily Press. The real surprise of the evening came when John F. Wurtz called Father Esper to the stage and, with a few words of appreciation for what he had done for the parish and telling of the love his people had for him, on behalf of the parishioners, presented him with a purse containing $150 in gold. Heavenly Father! Anyway, I share this with you so you see how trusted and beloved this man was. He was a voice for the community, and people took him seriously. So they surely listened closely and with great interest when he stood in front of his congregation one day in July of 1907 and told his flock that one of the greatest evils in the world was... Hi, my name is Teddy Ruxpin. Can you and I be friends? I mean, it would be a long time before Teddy Ruxpin was invented, but teddy bears. Teddy bears were the enemy. We unfortunately don't have the full transcript of his sermon that day, but pieces of it were quoted in various newspapers, so we can get a nice sense of it. And here is at least part of what Father Esper said. What more concerns the community is the teddy bear craze in relation to the children. The children who wouldn't have turned that way if they hadn't been encouraged. When your little girl asked for a dolly and you gave her a teddy bear, your action was fraught with a consequence that is only excusable on the ground of your ignorance. Bring your babies back to dollies or you will have weaned the grown-ups of the future from the babies that will never be. Nice little wordplay at the end there, though let me just be clear about what he means. Father Esper is saying that if little girls don't play with dolls now, then they won't grow up to have babies later. And that has far-reaching consequences. 
race suicide. The gravest danger which confronts our nation today is being fostered and encouraged by the fad for supplanting the good old dolls of our childhood with the horrible monstrosity known as the teddy bear. The very instincts of motherhood in a growing girl are blunted and oftentimes destroyed if the child is allowed to lavish upon an unnatural toy of this character the loving care which is so beautiful when bestowed upon a doll representing a helpless infant. No more disgusting sight has ever come to my eyes than is presented by the spectacle of a girl fondling, caressing, and even kissing these pseudo-animals. I mean, when you put it like that, it does sound a little weird. And here's one more bit from Father Esper. It is a shame upon the American people that it will suffer the development of the instinct of motherhood in its future women to be arrested for a fad for these bundles of horribleness, the most harmful and repulsive nature fakes ever perpetrated. Whew. Could you imagine if a public figure said something like this today? It would go viral, which is exactly what it did back in 1907, when going viral meant showing up in newspapers across the country. One day after Esper gave his sermon, news of it was everywhere. Here, for example, was the headline in the Journal Gazette of Mattoon, Illinois. Teddy bear is a menace. And in the Detroit Free Press. Teddy bear dooms race. We found versions of this story appearing in Iowa, Indiana, Massachusetts, California, Ohio, Utah, on and on. In the Washington Post, there was actually some nice news about teddy bears. A four-year-old boy named Edward N. Hackett had fallen out of his third-story window while holding his teddy bear, then landed on an awning, rolled off, and the teddy bear broke his fall. He was totally fine. But news of this was published on page six of the paper. You know, it was on page one of the paper that very same day. Teddy bear fad destroys motherly instinct and trends to race suicide, says Priest. Soon, the entire nation was debating the issue, and many people were on Father Esper's side. Teddy bears were banned in certain places, and parents and educators bemoaned their bad influence. Which sounds absolutely nuts today, of course. Teddy bears seem like the most innocent, cute, harmless thing anyone's ever invented. I mean, except for Lotso from Toy Story 3. She loved you, Lotso. She never loved me. So how were teddy bears once seen as so threatening that they could destroy an entire civilization? The teddy bear was meant to be nothing more than a cuddly toy, but it unexpectedly became something far more. It became subversive, or at least it became seen that way. For many young girls, it became a gateway into a bigger world. It changed us. But here's the thing. We, in turn, change the teddy bear, too. There is a lot to snuggle up to here, but first, let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, we're back. 
So the thing I love about this national teddy bear scandal is how much it challenges the very fundamentals of our lives. I mean, think about your most basic childhood experiences. Did you have a teddy bear? I did. His name was Blue Bear and he was bright orange. Okay, kidding. He was a blue bear named Blue Bear. But to really understand the fear of the teddy bear, we have to start by reconsidering things that are as fundamental to us as childhood. So let's start with that. Childhood. For most of world history, and indeed most of American history, of course children worked. Everybody worked. That's Karen Sanchez Epler, who teaches American studies and English at Amherst College. And now there is a debate among historians about exactly how children were treated throughout most of history. A French historian has very famously argued a few decades ago that childhood was a modern construct made up in the 18th century, and that before then, children were basically treated as miniature adults. But Karen and many childhood historians today say that isn't quite right, and there is plenty of evidence that children across time were playing games and being treated as special and so on. But either way, it is well agreed upon that before the 18th century, people weren't catering to children the way that we do now. If kids had toys, they were homemade. If they had books, they were instructional. And then something new came along. So the earliest book that wasn't um, trying to teach you how to read or, you know, sort of moral didactic book, but a book that's core was to support play was published in 1744. It was by a British publisher named John Newberry, and it's known by the title A Little Pretty Pocketbook, though that's actually just the very first part of its title. The full title of the book went like this. A Little Pretty Pocketbook, intended for the instruction and amusement of Little Master Tommy and Pretty Miss Polly. Two letters from Jack the Giant Killer, as also a ball and a pincushion, the use of which will infallibly make Tommy a good boy and Polly a good girl. And that's not all. The title, I swear to you, is actually only halfway over. There is a whole other part about a songbook, but whatever. We really need to dig into what you just heard. So remember, as the title says, you've got your book and it comes with a bunch of stuff. Two letters from Jack the Giant Killer and a ball or a pincushion. So what are the letters? The letters explain that the little boy or girl that got this book would be constantly judged by their nurse or whoever was taking care of them. When the child did something good, a pin would be put into the red side of the ball or pin cushion, and when the child did something bad, a pin would be put into the black side. That way, there could be constant accounting of the child's deeds. Silicon Valley CEOs today would call that gamification. And also, let's talk about that ball or pincushion. The book didn't come with two objects, and there weren't two versions of this thing that you could buy at a store. The ball or the pincushion, well, they were... It's the same object. It's a cloth ball. It's just you call it a ball or you call it a pincushion, depending on which gender you're talking to. Even at that moment when the idea of we're going to make entertaining things for children, they're still going to have this disciplinary edge to them, and they're going to be gendered. And this really sets the tone for the future of play. As publishers create more books for kids and eventually manufacturers start to create toys, they are always thought of as part of the grooming process. Boys got balls and toys and things that prepared them for a life of labor and adventure. And girls, they got home goods little irons, little washing boards. And so play for girls always 
represented as just another site for learning domestic skills. And then along came the teddy bear to shatter that domestic bubble. Though it's not actually that simple. So let's pause for a minute on the history of childhood in America and rewind a few years to November of 1902. The American president, Teddy Roosevelt, is on a bear hunting trip in Mississippi. But despite being an avid hunter, Roosevelt never gets a bear. So by the end of the trip, Roosevelt's assistant finds a black bear and ties it to a tree so that Roosevelt could just shoot it point blank, which is kind of like when they put a human being in front of Dick Cheney so he could shoot the guy in the face. That's how that went, right? Anyway, Roosevelt refused to shoot the captive bear because, come on, that is just pathetic. Soon news of this gets out, and a Washington Post cartoonist draws Roosevelt waving off this adorable little bear, and then the whole situation becomes a national sensation. It's the hunter president who wouldn't shoot the bear. From here, two popular origin stories about the teddy bear emerge. One is from a guy named Morris Mictum, who ran the Ideal Toy Company in New York. The company would go on to become famous for the Rubik's Cube, and very appropriately for our conversation about gendered dolls, they also invented Betsy Wetsy. Ask your mommy to get you Betsy Wetsy, and then you can be a mommy too. But back in 1902, Morris supposedly saw this news about Teddy and the bear, and he thought to create a plush bear and call it a teddy bear. He's often credited as the inventor of the teddy bear, though some historians suspect that this was really just a made-up story to promote his company. The second, more widely accepted story comes from Germany. It starts with a woman named Margareta Steiff, who owned a local clothing company and was confined to a wheelchair because of polio. One day in 1879, she made an elephant pincushion based on a little guide she found in a magazine. And... The children in the family sort of adopted this instead of being a pincushion as a toy. And soon there was so much demand for the pincushions that her uh, clothing business turned into a toy business. The business was called Stife, and it's around to this day. That voice you just heard was Rick Emerson, who's been a product development and marketing consultant for Stife for 15 years. So as the story goes, Margareta created all sorts of other animal toys and had some members of her family join the company. And one of those people, a nephew named Richard Stife, was visiting the zoo one day in 1902 when he started sketching out a toy based on a bear he saw. He called it PB55. That's actually the very first name of the teddy bear, PB55. And in 1903, the company decided to take PB55 to market. Steiff presented the bear at a, at a toy fair in Germany, and there wasn't much interest at first. However, at the end of this show, which I believe was in Leipzig, a buyer from the U.S. placed an order for 3,000 pieces. I'm assuming... That's because of the his association with the popularity of Teddy Roosevelt in the U.S. The original order of 3,000 went missing. Nobody knows what happened to them, and finding them is basically the greatest dream of every teddy bear collector today. But whatever happened, that was just the beginning. More orders came, and then more and more. By the year 1907, the company made over 1 million teddy bears, mostly for the export market. That year, newspapers were alight with stories about the booming popularity of teddy bears. Here's the Lancaster New Era of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. College girls and society women have taken up the fad, says the Boston Herald, and there is no telling where the craze will stop. The bearish tone of State Street or Wall Street is nothing to the bearish domination of the toy market. Oh, Lancaster New Era, your wordplay is so good I can hardly bear it. Anyway, there are stories of people lining up for these bears and drawings of girls playing with these bears and just general bear-loving mania. 
Though, there's also at least a small bit of grumbling about the teddy bear. One of the earliest came from child-rearing experts, because this was a time of great change in the way the kids were being raised at home. More and more parents were having their little children sleep in a separate room rather than keeping them with them. That's Peter Stearns, a university professor of history at George Mason University who studies the history of the family. And Peter says that as parents moved their children into their own rooms for the first time, they started giving teddy bears to the kids to comfort them. Though some people said that was sending the wrong message. It gives a wrong signal that the first thing you should develop an attachment to is a thing rather than a person. Which sounds not unlike things we still debate today, like nipple confusion. But then things started to get a little more hysterical. For example, in the Scranton Tribune on June 16, 1907, a columnist reports that teddy bears are having, quote, as permanent an effect upon the manners and morals of our age as pretty nearly any other factor you can mention, end quote. For example, the columnist writes, Father and mother and brother and sister and nurse and governess bow in subjection to the horrid little beast. Children carry them in cars. Grown-up people don't seem to think it demeans their dignity to be seen snuggling them under their arms. And I even saw a devoted lover once come into a hall full of people who were brilliantly gowned in evening dress, clasping a big teddy bear to his immaculate shirt front. And one month after that column was written, the mother load arrives. Father Michael G. Esper goes on a tirade against teddy bears at St. Joseph's Parish and the news rockets around the country. And just to refresh your memory, here is a bit of what he had to say. No more disgusting sight has ever come to my eyes than is presented by the spectacle of a girl fondling, caressing, and even kissing these pseudo-animals. Soon, a national debate is fueled. Newspapers are running around town surveying the locals. Most people, to be fair, think that teddy bears are perfectly fine, but there are also plenty of people going anti-bear. For example, here's a guy named W.A. Ramsey, who was quoted in the Nevada State Journal. I agree with the priest. I never liked the teddy bear. The old-fashioned doll is the thing to play with. There is something human about a doll, at least it has the human image. But these toy beasts have nothing to recommend them. By the way, the Nevada State Journal describes that guy as, quote, childless and unmarried, yet an observer, end quote. So, sure, sounds like he's qualified to comment on what children should play with. But soon enough, more consequential people also start to take Father Esper's side. For example, teddy bears begin being banned at schools. Here's a piece from the Idaho Record. Now the teachers have joined the fight. Little girls, they point out, formerly got their first lessons in sewing through the natural desire to provide their dolls with pretty clothes. The teddy bear, however, does not wear clothes, save possibly a ribbon or sweater or cap. And so the up-to-date child who has discarded her dollies for the intrusive Bruin has no incentive to learn to stitch and make buttonholes. And in New York, where teachers were also banning teddy bears, a woman named Mrs. Jessup had been running the sewing department at NYU, and she told a local paper this. Formerly, as I went about the city visit in the schools, it was a delight to me to see the little girls sitting in groups making dolls clothes or engaged in sewing that I knew they had learned in school. Now, instead of these domestic scenes, it is invariably a teddy bear that is the center of attention, and the little hands are idle. And you might be wondering... How could people possibly be this worked up over a cute little teddy bear? So, it is now time to pick back up on our history of childhood, because all is not well in 1907. This definitely was a time of anxiety um, 
possibly crisis. I don't know if I'd go that far, but there there's a sense of course, because women's roles are changing so rapidly at the turn of the 20th century, um, that there's a great deal of concern that girls aren't going to turn out right. This is Jennifer. I'm Jennifer Helgren. I'm Associate Professor of History at the University of Pacific. And Jennifer says a lot is happening just as these teddy bears are entering the picture. So first of all, women are increasingly leaving their traditional gender roles. They're becoming more athletic and more independent. By 1900, women make up 37% of college students and they were increasingly entering the workforce. And this alarmed many scientists because they saw a pattern. Women who were educated were having fewer children. And so the scientists of the day determined that, oh my goodness, education is bad for women's fertility. That uh, honestly took me a second to even understand. So just to be clear, the scientists didn't think that women were simply making a choice to delay child rearing. They thought that education literally harmed a woman's physical ability to give birth. So that's what we're dealing with here. And as American culture worried about these lost women, it started to focus a lot on how to preserve the girls. There's a psychologist by the name of G. Stanley Hall, and he's generally regarded as the father of adolescent psychology. And he writes this huge book in 1904 called Adolescence. The overwhelming majority of it is focused on boys, but he's got this chapter on girls And one of the things that he argues in there is that girls during their sensitive adolescent years, especially when they're menstruating, need to take it easy. You know, relax, be quiet, focus on nature. And this is actually pretty liberal compared to some of G. Stanley Hall's contemporaries who made arguments that, like, girls need to lay down in the recumbent position for the entirety of their periods. Either way, the message was clear. For girls in particular, childhood was not a time of exploration and experimentation. It was a careful and fragile path, and any false step could lead away from motherhood. So that may explain all the motherly instinct stuff that Father Esper was talking about in his sermon, but he also said something else in there, something that I hadn't drawn attention to until now, but that we really do need to pause and look at, despite how ugly it is. He used the phrase race suicide. Here it is again. Race suicide. The gravest danger which confronts our nation today is being fostered and encouraged by the fad for supplanting the good old dolls of our childhood with the horrible monstrosity known as the teddy bear. So what's he talking about here? Well, it's eugenics, right? If the right people don't meet, marry, and have kids, then the quality of the human race will degenerate. But of course, people who used the phrase race suicide back then weren't just talking about the human race. They were talking about the white race. There was a belief that immigrants and African-Americans were having more and more babies, and yet white people were killing themselves off with things like education for women and birth control, which was just becoming a thing. And this wasn't some crackpot theory spoken in hushed tones. I mean, the president of the United States of America at the time had endorsed it. This is Teddy Roosevelt's second and considerably less flattering intersection with teddy bear history. For example, here is a letter from 1902 that he wrote in which he talked about the dangers of race suicide. The man or woman who deliberately avoids marriage and has a heart so cold as to know no passion and a brain so shallow and selfish as to dislike having children is, in effect, a criminal against the race and should be an object of contemptuous abhorrence by all healthy people. 
And in fact, after Father Esper's theory of a teddy bear-fueled race suicide went viral, a reporter managed to ask Roosevelt specifically about what he thought of it all. And according to the News Palladium of Benton Harbor, Michigan, He only laughed when he was asked to comment on the priest's remarks. He said he had read the remarks of Father Esper with interest, but he had nothing to say for or against his namesake pet. So now let's look at the whole picture. The role of women was changing. Girls were becoming more active just as the most respected thinkers of the day were urging girls to become less active. There was a big, broad, racist fear that white people were going extinct, which was endorsed by the man sitting in the White House. And now here comes the teddy bear replacing dolls. Those wholesome dolls. Those toys that do what toys for girls have been meant to do for centuries, which is to teach them how to become mothers and homemakers. You can imagine it being seen as the lowest of all blows. It's as if the moralists of the nation were saying, everything in our world is already changing. And now this, of all basic things, you're going to take away the dolls? If the girls are doing anything other than developing those maternal instincts, then it's signaling danger to people in this era, or at least some of the people in this era. Although, by the way, motherhood was not the only thing dolls of the time were teaching. Harvard professor Robin Bernstein wrote a paper in 2011 that explored how white children in the 19th century would also be given black dolls and they would, quote, read books about slavery and then use dolls to act out scenes of racialized violence and forced labor, end quote. How much of this was in Father Esper's mind when he gave that sermon about teddy bears? It's impossible to know, but his language was certainly clear. And now I think we have a far fuller understanding of just what people were concerned about when they said that the teddy bear was harming girls. So, whew, that is a lot of ugly stuff. Are you ready for a curveball? Because while researching the history of the teddy bear, something landed in my inbox that blew my mind and made me look at this history very differently. And it's coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So to recap, Father Esper and his sympathizers across the country were concerned about the fate of their young girls. The culture was changing, and for many traditionalists, the teddy bear became the representation of that change. It seemed like something nefarious, a weapon aimed at the very heart of girlhood. But... While researching this episode, I received an email from Miranda Sachs, a visiting history professor at Denison University. She'd done a research paper on the 1907 teddy bear scare and unfortunately didn't have time to hop on the phone with me to discuss it, but she did send me a couple of notes on her findings. And one of them said this. Reading over the picture books where teddy bears are anthropomorphized, they are badly behaved. They're not really models of behavior. They act kind of like bad boys, which is why a lot of the early marketing was for boys. But they ultimately fit more in the doll's world, which is why they were for girls. To put it more simply, teddy bears were originally thought of as a toy for boys. 
After I read this, I started scouring the archives to see what she had found. And sure enough, there it is. In 1907, for example, there's a series of books called The Teddy Bears, where these rambunctious bears keep causing trouble for a little boy named John. And it can get dark. In one book, John finds the teddy bears piled up in a heap outside the schoolhouse. And the text reads like this. Each teddy bled about a pint. His very life all round was spilling. For you must know a teddy bear can't live without his sawdust filling. <laughs> and in 1906, a newspaper called the San Francisco Call ran a full-page explanation of how the teddy bear became so popular. It started by referencing a German woman who made these things. She's never actually named in the story, but it's clearly Margareta Steiff. And then the story describes patient zero of the teddy bear, the first child to buy a bear in a store along either the Jersey Shore or in Atlantic City. Now, is this true? Who knows? But the gendering here is worth noting because that first child to buy a bear, the first kid to supposedly spark a national interest, it was a boy. Here's from that 1906 story. He marched away, hugging his prize just as proudly as a grown-up man or the president of the United States returning from a successful hunt. That started the bear fad. Of course, every other little boy on the boardwalk had to have a bear. It was just the thing for a boy. Girls had dolls to play with, and boys ought to have something like a bear when it was too hot for baseball or to play Indian in the park or shipwrecked sailors on the sand. And here's where it's worth noting that these earliest Stife dolls were not actually cuddly. They were hard. Instead of being filled with cotton, they were filled with a kind of wood shaving called excelsior. They also had a hump at the bottom of their neck. This was not a soft and gentle thing, so one could assume it was not meant to be handled gently. Now, I tried my absolute damnedest to find a historian who has deeply studied the teddy bear, but I just couldn't. It's a very understudied topic. And Rick, the consultant for Stife, knew nothing about its early gendering. To the best of his knowledge, the company in the 1900s had no position on whether teddy bears were for boys or girls. But I have a theory. And to be clear, this is only my theory, but it's one I think is well supported by the facts. And it goes like this. Although, and perhaps because, the teddy bear was never intended to be more than an innocent toy, it just might be the most consequentially subversive toy we have ever had. Because consider it, from the moment that the first children's book was released in 1744, girls were only given toys that promoted domesticity. The pincushion was soon joined by toy irons and cookware and baby dolls. Basically, the world would not permit the creation of a toy for girls if it didn't serve the purpose of training that girl to be a mother and housekeeper. And this was true at the turn of the century, too, when the teddy bear was created. It's hard to imagine anyone approving the teddy bear as a toy explicitly for girls back then, because it just didn't have a domestic purpose. But boys, on the other hand, were allowed to have a wider range of things. They got toys that encouraged adventure and discovery. A bear was a perfectly fine thing for them to have, because, I mean, just listen to that story from 1906. Bringing home a teddy bear was like bringing home a bear that you shot and killed yourself, just like President Theodore Roosevelt might do. So that's how bears enter the home. That's the only way they could have entered the home, through boys. And once they were there, well, here's from that 1906 San Francisco call story again. But boys are not the only lovers of teddy bears by no means. Their little sisters like them too. At first, little girls looked at the new playthings with some trepidation. Bears and dolls are so very different. Dolls are always ladylike in their manners. But there's no counting on the actions of bears. 
But after a while, the article says, the girls started to take to the bears. They liked their little faces and how the bears moved like the dolls. Both have movable arms and legs. Instantly, the baby sister decided she liked bears too. And Olivia May, with all her gorgeous silk and lace frocks and her fetching bonnets, was left lying on her face in the corner of the nursery while the little mother transferred her affection to Teddy. Uh, note how the writer just referred to a little girl as little mother. Reminder of the times there. However... The changeable young mother soon found that she could not count on being able to borrow Teddy from her brother. So with the wisdom of her sex, she decided that the only thing to do was to have one all for her very own. And so the shift was complete. The boys had brought home a non-domestic toy and it was adopted by the girls. It was a doll dressed as a bear or a bear in the form of a doll. Whatever it was, it changed the discussion of what a girl's toy could be. It helped us imagine a different world. Now, imagine a guy like Father Esper who stood to protect traditional values. You can hear a kind of panic in his voice now, can't you? The firewall had been breached. Here's Jennifer Helgren again. So one of the things I like to ask as a historian in, in terms of you know how people get through things and how social change happens is ask the question, who won? And in fact, the teddy bears won, right? And the teddy bears were probably already winning by the time a lot of these editorials were written. Father Esper was not giving a rallying cry. He was giving a concession speech. So what does it look like for the teddy bears to have won? Well, it's obviously too simple to say that the bears alone changed us. The bear came along at a time of great change. And although they, you know, didn't create that change, they came to symbolize that change. So as the bears spread, they reinforced the change. And surely they helped lead to even more change. But we also changed the bears. To see what I mean, let's take a little field trip. Okay, we were just in this room. So right to my right, we have Margareta Stife. This is Steve Ferry. He's the co-owner, curator, and chef at the Den of Marbletown, which is a museum of stife teddy bears in Marbletown, New York. The place was closed on the day I happened to be in town, but Steve let me in anyway because this is a man who loves to talk about teddy bears, and I'm not his usual kind of visitor. This place is really all about women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and all that. They love this place. They love every second of it. They get they get it completely. It's not just a fun place. It's like, oh my God, I see my past. I see quality. I see things built to last. And, you know, it's just, I love watching them enjoy it so much, you know, and then you just see them have the best times. And then kids right after that. <laughs> The museum's prize collection is a 1904 teddy bear, which looks pretty good for its age, although the fur on most of its face has been rubbed away. And as you walk around, you can get a better sense for what it was like to actually play with one of these early bears. For example, this is mentioned nowhere in any of the articles we found, but some of the earliest bears made a noise. You tip them back and bring them forward, and... Now, these are called growlers, and they've been growling since about 1908. <laughs> And I'm up to three wildlife experts in this room telling me they're not goats, sheep, lambs, or anything like that, but they sound like baby bears. As time goes on, the bears start to track with history. In 1912, Stife released a black teddy bear with red eyes, which was meant to comfort children who lost family on the Titanic. And in 1935, Stife created a panda bear, just as China allowed real panda bears to go outside the country. But something else was happening over time as well. The bears started to look different. 
It's easy to notice in a place like this, a teddy bear museum. And in 1985, two scientists named Robert Hind and L.A. Barden were wandering around a similar museum in England when they were inspired to start measuring the teddy bear's faces because they sensed a pattern. Here's from a paper that they published on their findings. The earliest teddy bear in the collection, dated 1903, had a low forehead and a long snout and was muzzled. A survey of the other bears in the collection showed a trend over time toward a larger forehead and a shorter snout relative to the dimensions of the head as a whole. The bears evolved. The first teddy bears had faces that looked like bears. Long snout, angular face. But over time, that softened, which the scientists point out is exactly the same thing that happened to Mickey Mouse since he debuted in 1928 with a long snout and bulging eyes. Today, his nose and eyes are small and his forehead is much bigger. So the question is, why? Of course, teddy bears do not reproduce, but they are made for sale. Those types more successful in leaving the shop ledges in one year are more likely to be strongly represented there in the next. It's Darwinism by commerce. And why the larger forehead and shorter snout relative to the dimensions of the head as a whole? Well, the hypothesis is that these are the features found in things we like to nurture. It's Kinshinshima, a German term coined in 1950 that we've come to understand as the features that make something cute, whether it's in a human infant or a little puppy or a cartoon mouse or a stuffed bear. The scientists in 1985 left it at that, but a decade later, in 1995, a paper in the journal Animal Behavior tried to pick up where they left off. It's titled The Survival of the Cutest, Who's Responsible for the Evolution of the Teddy Bear? And it aims to find out exactly when we, as little humans, start caring about Kinshinshima. And here's what it reports. The preference for baby-featured bears was examined in three age groups, four, six, and eight-year-olds. The six- and eight-year-olds significantly preferred baby-featured bears. However, the four-year-olds did not. The evolution of the teddy bear is thus apparently not driven by the ostensible consumer, the young child. The preference for baby features may be part of a wider, relatively late development of nurturant feelings toward young. In other words, we don't start looking at things as cute or not until we're about six to eight years old. But then we have a strong preference for it. There's something inside of us that not just gravitates towards cuteness, but will literally alter the things around us to become more cute as a result. Our natural instinct, at least in some venues, is to soften. And so it was with the teddy bear, an object that once struck fear into the hearts of moralists and was then transformed into the platonic ideal of cuteness. You know what this makes me think of? This is going to sound like a total tangent, but stick with me here. Do you know the history of the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game? Today, of course, it's the main event of the seventh inning stretch where everyone at a ball game sings about wanting to go to a ball game. But that is not the full song. That's just the chorus of a much longer song, one that was written in 1908, only one year after Father Esper railed against the teddy bear's impact on young girls. And here is how the original version began. So this is a song about a woman named Katie Casey who loves baseball. She had baseball fever and had it bad, the song says. And on Saturday, her boyfriend asked if she'd like to go to a show. But Katie says, no, I'll tell you what you can do. And that's when we get to the chorus. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. 
The chorus is Katie's words. It's Katie telling her boyfriend to take her out to the ball game at a time in which the ball game was primarily a place for men. Later in the song, she got what she wanted. The lyrics say that Katie saw all the games, knew the players by their first names, and would yell at the umpire when he got a call wrong. The song was written by Jack Norworth, who at the time was having an affair with an actress and famous suffragist named Trixie Fraganza. And historians now believe that Katie in the song is really Trixie. It may be a stretch to say that Take Me Out to the Ball Game was a feminist anthem because it was instantly popular at the time by men and women alike, but it was certainly a feminist tribute. It was cheering on the changes of the time, which, of course, we don't remember now. All modern baseball fans know now is the chorus, which is sung by whoever's in the stands. So anyway, here is why I'm telling you all this. When I was talking to Jennifer and she said, Ask the question who won. And in fact, the teddy bears won. I started to think about the evolution of the teddy bear and the shortening of Take Me Out to the Ball Game and what it really means to win, historically speaking. The teddy bear definitely did win, of course. In 1907, people like Father Esper saw a fork in the road. One direction was defined by the doll and represented women as traditional homemakers. The other was defined by the bear and represented a more complex society. And we got the bear. But then we changed the bear. We got rid of its harsh edges. We replaced its tough insides with fluffy cotton, and we smushed its face down into something that frankly isn't very bear-like at all. I mean, look at a teddy bear today. It is not a bear. It's a series of overlapping circles. The bear had come to symbolize a cultural force that shaped our world, but then we shaped the bear based on something deep inside of us, something that makes six-year-olds gravitate towards things that need nurturing. And what we ended up with is a still imperfect, but certainly more equitable world than we had in 1907. But also, no sense at all that our teddy bears were once much wilder animals. Just as we now go to a baseball game and sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, with no idea that we're actually singing a countercultural song with all the countercultural parts chopped off, leaving only the warm, fuzzy middle that brings us all together. I wonder what other things around us are like this. Objects that once challenged us by design or by accident, and went on to shape our culture anew. So what does it mean to win, historically speaking? You could argue that winning means changing the world so thoroughly that the thing you once represented sounds archaic and confusing to modern ears, and you don't need to confront anyone anymore. You can just lay down your weapon, let it sink away, start drifting towards your one-time enemy until both are remade in some version of the other's image, and you find new purpose for each other. And then, for better or for worse, you end up in a nice, warm, teddy bear embrace. And here is where we would bring the music back in and run the credits. But wait, before we do, there really is one last place I had to call. It's St. Joseph's Parish in St. Joseph, Michigan, where Father Esper gave his famous sermon. The place still exists, though the woman who picked up the phone had never heard of Father Esper or his legacy. Okay, it's all news to me. I asked if anyone there might know something about Father Esper, and she said it was unlikely. Almost everyone there is new, including the current pastors. So that just left me with one question. Are there teddy bears at St. Joseph's Parish? Not that I know. Not that I know of. I've never seen any. Okay. Why do you think there would be some in in the church? I don't know. Maybe there's a children's room. With some teddy bears. I'm pretty sure I have never seen in our in our Rose Center where we have you know activities that we have any teddy bears around. 
But that would be interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah, but I kind of like it that way. The teddy bear didn't need to have made it inside Father Esper's church. It just went everywhere else instead. And that's our episode. But of course, it's not all I've got for you. Perhaps as you listen to Steve of the Teddy Bear Museum, you wondered how the legacy of the teddy bear gets passed on to a new generation. The answer is unexpected, I'd say, and I'll share it. But first, if you love Build for Tomorrow, the podcast, you will totally love Build for Tomorrow, the book. It's an action plan for how to embrace change, adapt fast, and future-proof your life and career, and combines lessons from this podcast with what I've learned from the smartest entrepreneurs of today. You can find it wherever you get books or by going to jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. And if you want even more advice and encouragement on how to adapt fast, then sign up for my newsletter. You can find it by going to jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. You can also get in touch with me directly at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at heypfeiffer. H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R. Thanks to our wonderful voice actors who read our archival material. They were Brent Rose, who you can find at brentrose.com, and Gia Mora, who you can find at giamora.com. This episode was reported and written by me, Jason Pfeiffer, with additional research by Louis Anslow. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. Thanks to the many people who helped out as I researched this episode, including Daniel Radosh, who first alerted me to Father Esper's sermon, as well as Ashley Remmer of Girl Museum, the nice people at The Strong, as well as Allison Robinson, Keith Mashad, Emily Gallagher, Elizabeth Yang, Patrick Ryan, Miranda Sachs, Emily Aguilo-Perez, and Chris Cornelis. Thanks to the podcast Between the Liner Notes, which is where I first learned about Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Now, finally, here's the thing about teddy bears. There are people who love teddy bears, and then there are people who love teddy bears so much that they will build a museum. And funny thing, you cannot predict who will be who. Steve of the Den of Marbletown certainly couldn't have. He's worked as a television news producer and a chef, but when he got married, a seed was planted in the form of a collectible teddy bear from his mother-in-law. When I first joined their family, I started getting bears in the mail, and I asked my wife what's going on, and she's like, my mom wants you to be a gentleman teddy bear collector, and I looked at her and said something like, what's that? But, you know, I love animals, and I love things built to last, and um, I knew she was working on me to get the collection that no one else seemed interested in, so when I realized I was going to get it, I thought, well, what am I going to do with it? And I wanted to share it, because I was really enamored by the whole thing, actually. It really kind of grew on me. And Steve really has done it. If you're in Marbletown, New York, go check that place out. All right, that's all for this time. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow.